Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to the Middlesex County Cricket League podcast. My name's Dan Hough from Twickenham. It's good to be back. There's cricket on our TV screens again. England are not doing massively well, but it's good to be able to, to watch more cricket and, of course, to talk about it. As ever, I'm joined by Salman Ali from North London. Sal, how are you? Yeah, good evening, Dan. Well, yeah, a bit of a cold, a bit of a sniffle at the minute, but I'll power through, mate. Yeah, good to be back on again. Arsenal still trundling along, Sal? Yeah, as I said, I like to mention it too much. Talked about you know, come back in May when we're hopefully over the line and we can speak more about it then. But yeah, at the moment, it's not going too badly. I love that. You, I sense you're waiting for impending disaster, but keep thinking, maybe it's not coming. Maybe it's got to be, maybe there has it might to be some. There has to be something that's going to happen. Can't have this season where it's, everything's run so smoothly so far. So yeah. I'm just waiting for that sort of you know that blip or you know something to happen, which maybe derails our challenge. But yeah, at the moment, doing really well, so I'm pretty happy. So. Hopefully it continues. Excellent stuff. Good. And as ever on a winter podcast, we have, or we try to get special guests on. And this week we've got somebody who literally needs no introduction to anybody who knows anything about Middlesex cricket. We're really pleased to be able to speak to Gus Fraser. Angus, how are you? Are you well? Yeah, very good. Just listening to someone there talk about his side, my side, Liverpool. Not very happy. Just Ooh. got turned over by Brian today. Unlucky, actually. I thought it was anyway, moving on. It's not happening for him. But uh, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. I would have said that Brighton second goal was a good goal. He took it well, didn't he, the lad? It was a brilliant goal, wasn't it? Absolutely stunning. Yeah. yeah it was. Good, good. Gus, a couple of quick bits. Now, I, I say everybody knows who you are, but I think it might nonetheless be worth saying that, of course, you, you started off playing for Stanmore and have been linked to Stanmore all your cricket in life, really. And that led on to 170-odd test wickets at 27.3 and, you know, bowling, I think it was 8 for 53. Was that your best ever? Port of Spain, do I, I remember so, that? Yeah. In the late 1990s, yeah. yeah. 
Fantastic stuff. I was going to ask you a rather mundane question first, though. I guess when you're playing for England, your winters are sorted out. You're, you're generally touring. And when you're not touring, you're rehabilitating in, you know, minus five as opposed to 35. But when you were making your way, and perhaps after you'd finished playing for England, what were you doing in the winters? And has, how has that changed between what professional cricketers do now in the winter? Were you literally see you in four months, guys? Or how did it work as a Middlesex cricketer in the 1990s? I would see you in six months, actually. Okay, yeah, fair comment. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, certainly early, I mean, my first summer with Middlesex, 1984, I joined up after I failed my A-levels. <laughs> uh, didn't work particularly hard for them. And that winter I was going to go, wait, 1845? Anyway, you either went abroad, so I spent a couple of winters when I was young playing in Wellington, so you'd be lined up at the club over there and travel there, actually, Travel there, or you work at home. And I had two jobs. I was worked at Macro in Acton. I was in the DIY department there, taking orders for tiles and and generally trying to keep that area of the store tidy. And then I had a back problem, stress fracture in my back, I think in '86. And Alan Moss, who was the chairman of Middlesex then, said you need strengthening up. So I spent that winter on the building side. So the BBC, you know, this well, it was the sort of the newish area of the BBC, an extension of the BBC, I, I could say it was built by me. It wasn't, but I worked in the concrete gang there with about half a dozen Irishmen who used to take the mickey out of me no end. And it was all in big piping around and making sure that the concrete that was being pumped into the building was got there and everything was in place. So that was a, another winter. So, yeah, it was just a question of then. Let me get this right. So, so you had possibly a stress fracture and the solution was to go and work on a building site. I'm sure that's what... Well, we're when the, the stress fracture was obviously amended and it was just yeah. a general thing. You're not strong enough. You need to get stronger. Go and do some manual labour. And that was a recommendation from Middlesex. So my dad worked in the building trade. My dad was a structural engineer from the company. And the company he worked for then we're building the new part of uh, the BBC Centre in White City. So I went there and was in the concrete bam, going one winter, lugging stuff around. And if it was cold and like it's been recently and there was nothing happening, or you're waiting for the concrete mixer to arrive, uh, go and do some sweeping to keep yourself warm. So you're just walking around, sweeping the sort of bits and pieces that you'd already been built to make sure that they were clean and presentable. I can imagine that's all pretty good for the soul, isn't it? It, it? When you're, you know, basking in the glory of a Boxing Day <laughs> test in Australia, it might not be such a bad thing to have had a background like that. No, I, I didn't mind it. I mean, I said I didn't mind it. I mean, there were, but you didn't know any better, so you just got on with it. I mean, uh, I suppose so it was six months. You then came back, report back normally the 1st of April. We used to then go to Barclays Bank, the sort of old Barclays Bank ground, which is on Hanger Lane. We used to train there. There was a sort of sports hall there as part of the complex. It's now just sadly gone to waste. I mean, Middlesex has always fired that as a place where if you're going to have home away from Lords, that would be it, just because of its fantastic location in the, in the centre of the county and really good for commun- uh, community, sorry, communing, all the links and everything there. But we used to go there and... I think, I mean, you may not have felt it then with Mike Gatting as captain and sort of John Embry. But I think we were, Don Bennett was a coach and Don Bennett was an ex-footballer. Graham Barlow was a player for Middlesex then and he was very much into his fitness. And we used to come back and have a week there and train really hard. I mean, it was one of those ones where you're just doing shuttles after shuttle and this until you almost put your head around the door and, and physically sick. And it was a really hard week of fitness. I mean, you were... You realise you had to keep yourself fit during the winter because Don Bennett told you that. Make sure you come back in good shape and you don't come back a stone overweight or anything like that. 
Um, but I think we're ahead of most a lot of counties then in the way that we would actually pay that attention to fitness, uh, where I don't think a lot of clubs were. And I think, I mean, one, all right, we had some brilliant players in the mid-80s when I joined up. But equally, I just think that the attitude of the, the group was far more professional, far more forward-thinking than a lot of the other counties that we were playing against. So one of the reasons why we were probably successful is we're not just good players, but good players almost leading the way in the way that you prepare and you're supposed to be a bit physically fitter and stronger and better to do your job as a professional cricketer. And some folks who really pushed that, I remember Graham Gooch being very much at the forefront of everybody needing to be fit. I wouldn't say they were laughed at, that's the wrong way of looking at it, but they weren't always taken seriously for it. You know, Gooch famously got up in the morning, didn't he, and was running round before everybody else had yeah, breakfast. I, mean, and- I look at, I mean, again, joining Middlesex in the mid-80s was a really fortunate thing because you were just, all right, it took you two or three years to get into that team, so that was a frustration, but you spent your time playing in the second level, playing a lot of second level, two or three years of second level cricket before you actually broke into the first 11, but working around the, 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 that sort of team with Wolf Slack, Graham Barlow, Clive Radley, Roland Butcher, Mike Gatting, John Embry, Paul Downson, Norman Cowens, Wayne Daniel, Neil Williams. I mean, they're, 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 these were top cricketers, but also really good pros. And they showed you what it took to become a professional cricketer. And then obviously get picked for England in 89. And it was a bit of a clear out in 89 because of the South Africa Rebel Tour. Graham Gooch took charge of Mickey Stewart and they really grabbed hold of a group of young England cricketers. And Graham Gooch was the real, he's the most, the greatest cricketer that I've played with. I mean, not only a great player, but an exceptional man. And he showed you what it took to be an international cricketer. And yeah, his attitude to fitness was really strong. And I just always remember when England got to the with the World Cup final in, was it 92, 93? We lost to Pakistan in Melbourne. Yeah. And it was them almost, in, the, in the group phases, didn't we? Yeah. And both of them was there. Both of them blamed it on the fact England lost to Pakistan in the final on the fact that England were worn out because of all the fitness work they'd done rather than it was the fitness work that got them there, if you see what I mean. And it was a real battle. But I, I suppose, again, on my first... England tour to Australia in 1991. There was a sort of Gooch and Gower at Loggerheads, wasn't there? Fitness commitment, work, 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 work. Whereas Gower was a more laid back sort of natural Flying talent. Flying helicopter over the test ground type That's, thing, yeah? Well, Tiger Moth, wasn't it? Tiger Moth. Tiger Moth, sorry, yes. Yeah. Yeah, if we didn't start playing then, it's about the 19th of April. Yeah, so it was a sort of real late start. We're starting two weeks earlier now and playing fewer days, but it feels more busy than ever. It is a long old season, isn't it? Mm. I was going to ask you about your first Test match, actually, Gus, because it was 1989, wasn't it? And I remember this was back when I was 15, so we're talking transistor radios in school-type territory to listen to it. And, of course, it was a pretty horrible summer to be smuggling the transistor radio back into your school because we were getting battered from pillar to post, weren't we? But we didn't in your debut test, did we? Edgebaston, we, that, is that the one that we drew or the... Did we draw two? I can't it remember. It might have been we two. We might have drawn the... I think it was 4-0, wasn't it? I think it was a six-test yeah. summer. Yeah, but, um, so your first test was a draw. Was that largely weather-related? or I can't really remember the details. but It did. I, I remember obviously playing in the game. I remember, playing, I remember being presented with your kit because in those days you, you were given your kit. Like nowadays everybody just seems to – you see so many people walking around with England shirts on and England kits on and obviously people can buy it in the shops, which is exactly the same as the stuff that the players wear. But in those, you had to play for England to be allowed to wear the kit. So you almost tried your kit on to see how it fitted and it was there sat in your place – in the dressing, but you couldn't actually wear it until you were actually picked for England. And then my debut in Australia, well, I was picked in at Lords. I was left out, so I had to give my kit back and then eventually got it in the next test match at Edgerston. And wearing my England sweater all day because you're just so proud and pumped to be given it and to be able to wear it. 
and it was just a red hot day, steamy, hot, sultry day, and it absolutely poured down in the afternoon. The ground was flooded and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, the weather affected the t- test, but uh, I think it would have been a draw anyway because it was one of those ones where you actually we batted quite well, well, in the first things anyway, and got over 300, I think, something like that. Yeah, and I mean, it was a disappointing series, but you did okay in that test, didn't you? Because I noticed you got a good four for. After that, obviously, the 1990s were generally pretty good to you, but I'm quite intrigued about your last test, Gus, and I don't want to walk into an unintentional minefield here, but it was a Boxing Day test in 1998, right? And we won by 12 runs. I remember Dean Headley got, did he get seven for in the second innings? Eight for, I don't know. He got a load of wickets in the second innings. I remember that. I didn't really know who Dean Headley was. It, was. it only then he came on my radar. But I found it strange that was your last test. Did, did you get injured and didn't play after that? Or no. how is it that such a great victory was the last test? Oh, that, and it's, I suppose it's almost like the, why English cricket, well, certainly international level, is on a four year cycle, really, because tours of Australia are the ultimate sort of challenge at the, the moment where I suppose English cricket can judge where it's at because the Australians are consistently pretty good. Sometimes they're exceptional, but they're never bloody awful, really, or rarely awful. So that is almost like a line in the sand as to where English cricket might be at a certain point in time. And I'd had a really good year in 98. I mean, I got 20-odd, high 20 wickets in the... I take, I think I have 50-odd, over 50 test wickets anyway in the, in the Tour of the Caribbean and then at home against South Africa. And went to Australia... And got slogged around a bit in a couple of warm-up games before the first test match. Played in the first test match, got a couple of wickets. Match probably felt, but wasn't didn't look particularly effective. But no one did. And then almost it was as though that a decision had been made that I was gone in a way that right. It was I didn't have enough up my sleeve anymore to I don't know push the game or drive the game forward as a bowler. And I was left out of the second test match in Adelaide, and I only played in. Melbourne because Alex Tudor was ill or I think I had an injury or was ill and I just remember Alex Stewart on the morning of the test match we were in the coach picked us up I had been told I wasn't playing in the test match at Melbourne and I think it might have been a test where the first day was rained off without a ball being bowled or something like that but driving to the ground on the day that the, actually that's right because I think we tossed up and then it rained all day but driving to the ground and just sat there in the coach room all we, most of your kits at the dressing room uh, but you obviously have a bag that you take with personal belongings and maybe some and Alex Stewart just came up to me on the bus and he said have you got your kit with you to play and I said well yeah of course I have because you're just ready for it. <laughs> it quite and, cool if you said no <laughs> yeah and he said well Alex Tudor's struggling you might well be playing today so anyway I played and I didn't bowl very well in that game to be honest I bowled poorly Dean had to go brilliantly as you said Darren Goff bowled well and I didn't play in the last two test match I didn't play the last I'm trying to think the last two test matches, yeah, which have been... Actually, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think now. I'd, I'd have missed out at Perth as well um, and played in the fourth test, which was Melbourne. So I missed Adelaide, Perth, played at Melbourne, left out, and Sydney went and Goff got a hat-trick in that one, didn't he? But yeah, it all came to an abrupt end, actually, even though you'd taken 50-odd wickets at low 20s apiece in sort of 10 tests in, in the West Indies and in England during the summer. The brutal nature of... Top class sport, I suppose. Yeah, and that's just cricket, really. I mean, it is almost you come back and think, where are we? Right, we weren't good enough in Australia again. What do we need to do? We need to get some younger. And equally, the summer, that summer was a miserable summer, wasn't it? Because we got knocked. I was in the World Cup squad. We got knocked out of the World Cup before the team, the tournament song was released. And then we lost to New Zealand. And that was when I wasn't picked in those test matches. And that was when Duncan 
Fletcher and NASA came along, really. So it was... I always say my... I, well, my first test... My last, my first test for England was in, at Edgbaston. My last game of cricket for England was at Edgbaston 2 in the World Cup against India in 1998. But my, my, my sort of international days finished at the Hogarth Round um, in, just by the Fuller's Brewery because I'd been... There was, a, again, England playing a Lord's Test match, illness or injury doubt over... I think it was Dean Headley, actually. I was in Middlesex at Taunton. Gus, could you get back as cover in case we're not sure? Thursday morning, driving up from Taunton, set off early. Got to the Hogarth round about 9 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Phone went, David Graveney, Gus, Dean Headley's all right. You can go back to Taunton. So I just basically went round the roundabout on the M4 and <laughs> on the A4 and went back to Taunton. And that, that, it was at the Hogarth round where my international career, I think, officially ended. <laughs> well, I was looking at it, you know, generally a glass half full type of guys like not many people can say they started their career in a their test career in an ashes match against australia and finished their test yeah. career in an ashes match against australia and didn't lose either yeah it's true actually it's i mean i mean trying to say this in the right way i mean you're decent you know you your record suggests it and you know you're a decent bowler but england, and england yeah. obviously did pretty well in the games that i played you like to think you've had some impact in that but yeah i mean Whilst we had a few sort of good test matches, I would say everything got thrashed a few times and lost more than we won. But I played in two or three England with victories over Australia and uh, Melbourne, uh, Adelaide, the Oval. So it wasn't without without victories over Australia. And also early nineties against West Indies. Younger listeners will probably not really mm. realise that the West Indies were still a serious political. Not that they're unserious now, but that they were a different type of obstacle, weren't they? In the early nineteen nineties, not as good as perhaps the generation before, but still pretty damn impressive. But I think they were. You reckon they were your biggest summers of cricket then? Almost England versus West Indies were the biggest summers than Ashes. They would just really look forward to because the West Indies were head and shoulders the best side in the world, and Australia were modest for themselves and. It was almost only really in the late 90s, 2000s that it's only the ashes that are important attitude came along. And I don't like it. I don't like that. I just think by bigging up one series too much, you diminish the importance of others and everything else just seems to be playing lip surface to an ashes series. And I I find that sort of disrespectful to the other series that England play. You want to see them have a decent profile and be looked on as an important series too. Totally agree. Totally agree. Sal, do you want to come in? Yeah, Gus, we want to sort of rewind a few years then. So you mentioned the end of your test career, but talk us through how actually you got involved with Middlesex. I know there was some sort of link through Stanmore, one of our sort of member clubs within the MCC. So do you want to give us sort of insight into how, how that all took place? Yeah, I, I grew up in Harrow Weald and uh, my dad, I mean, was a modest cricketer. He played, I think, a couple of games for Stanmore first eleven, but probably when he was in his 40s, 30s, 40s, he was a second eleven player and then became third eleven captain. So... My dad was always up at Stanmore. My mum really got involved in Stanmore. She used to do the teas up there and things like that. So Stanmore was always our club. And I always remember, I've got a younger brother, Alistair, who's two years younger than me. And we were always up at Stanmore. The third eleven used to play. You've got the main ground at Stanmore, then you've got the ponds. And then on the other side, this Harrow Rugby Club. And the third eleven used to play on the rugby ground there. So weird. My dad would take us up there. He'd be playing on the third eleven ground. Alistair and I would be knocking between the two going in the nets at Stanmore and just playing and playing. And I didn't really get any recognition when I was school cricket. I went to Goten High School, which is by Northwick Park Roundabout. It's now Harrow High, I think, is it? Harrow High, on the roundabout at Northwick Park Hospital. So, again, I say to people, I went to school in Harrow. And they oh, right, yeah, no, Goten High School. But 
and yeah, didn't really get any, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't really get any recognition until I was seventeen, and I only got recognition really when I started playing for Stanmore first eleven. So it was my sort of progress through Stanmore from the thirds, getting a game when they were short, when someone didn't turn up, and my dad, who was captain of third eleven, needed someone. So you play. I also spent one summer playing at Kenton, so I played the playing for Kent at third and fourth. Moore didn't have a particularly well-organised junior section then. And uh, they didn't have an under-13s. And I went and played uh, in Kenton under-13s for one summer because Kenton, my parents had some good friends with people at Kenton. Roger Batkin, I, I can't remember all the characters, but Kenton was like, a, Thursday evening was Kenton's social night, which my dad used to go for a pint at and take my, my, myself and my brother and we used to run around and play around. And Stanmore was a sort of Friday night. So the two clubs, Stanmore and Kenton, were pretty close. But yeah, it, the reason why really I got noticed as a young cricketer with talent was just through playing for the first 11 and bowling quite well. We had Andy Needham, um, uh, Richard Ellis and Andrew Miller, who were both on the Middlesex staff there. So they'd obviously told Don Bennett that I was bowling quite well. And all of a sudden, Don started appearing at the old, middle, at the old Stanmore first 11 game and it sort of all happened quite quickly after that. So, I mean, what was it like as a young sort of kid trying to play in, in sort of that Premier Division level, which is obviously what they call it nowadays? I mean, it must be a real sort of tough cricket to come across. I mean, how did that sort of toughen you up into your sort of later years? Becoming yeah, I, it was a lot different then. I mean, I think that the, it was a, I mean, the, there was one league, so it was the Middlesex kind of cricket league. I think it was one league with those 16 or 17, maybe 17 sides. It was 18. Did you play 17 league games a year? Was it something? It might have been 17 or 18. I'm trying to remember. You could easily try. It's one of those ones sometimes on a board, and it's right then all the Middlesex League clubs and trying to keep up. I remember your Southamptons and Wembley's and people like that. But it was, yeah, it it was good. I mean, just you were in a good, within a good group, a real team full of characters. My club captain, Graham Pornsfoot, who's sadly passed away around this time last year, a year ago, he was just a huge figure around Middlesex cricket. I mean, obviously president of the Middlesex Camp Cricket League. I held mo- most positions there. So he used to take myself and my brother and all these midweek games here, there and everywhere. And the summer was just full of cricket playing in all terms of Ali Jensen and Middlesex League representative sides. I don't know, just October, all these sort of silly games that you're playing. And he was a huge figure in my sort of cricket development. And then you look at the Stanmore side, Ross Cheese and Arthur Ferry, who were two opening bowlers, didn't really like the fact that this young thruster was coming through and challenging their new ball pairing. Pete Nichols, Steve Barrett was the wicket keeper who played at Finchley for quite some time. Yeah, Jeff Tyler, Dave Mawson, who, again, I left when I was... I went to Gaten, as I said, I went to Gaten High School. I didn't, go, didn't get into Harrow World Sixth Form College, which was where my mum wanted me to go. And I ended up going to Orange Hill Senior High School and that was because David Mawson did PE there. And uh, he got me in there and I played a lot of basketball. and did a lot of sport there for two years, which was really good for me. But he was an opening batsman. So, yeah, real lots of characters that really, I don't know, made it fun. Just uh, lots of strong memories of just listening to them, just carrying on like a... I mean, and all the politics and Grant Pornsville trying to manage all these egos and people trying to talk away at the batting line-up and I should be bowling and what's he doing Some bowling. things never change, because rest assured. I'm actually thinking of doing I mean, I, I want to do, sort of tempted to do a book, and it's almost, not that I suppose it would be slightly autobiographical, but, all, but also, like, fine leg. So fine leg's a fielding position, who feels at fine leg, what sort of characters feel there, and then you can all of a sudden introduce a Ross Cheese, because Ross Cheese is 
used to feel there because he was bowling up the other end. I tell stories about these sort of characters and there are, there are so many sort of characters around Middlesex League cricket then and sadly, I mean, a lot of them are passing away. I mean, Brian Reid obviously went, in, it's been in the last 12 months, which again, it was a huge figure of Brent Thington. I mean, the list is Rocker, isn't it? Uh, Rocker Robinson, he's passed away. I think his funeral was in the next week or so, isn't it? So wherever you went, there were all these sort of people that just used to sort of, being with Graham, you always knew the characters that were there. And end up with sing songs and stupid bloody bar games and getting home late and getting a rollicking from my parents because I've got school the next day and all this sort of stuff. No comment on any of that. We better, we better move on. I was going to ask you, Gus, in sort of, I guess it is a serious question, really, but now that you're, obviously, when you stop being a professional cricketer, you moved into various jobs with Middlesex and quite a few of them had meant that you had quite a lot to do with the league or you looked at the league quite a lot. And did your impressions of the cricket change because your job spec changed? Were you still looking at the Middlesex League in the same way? Now, inevitably, you know, you've got the interest of Middlesex County Cricket Club to, to look forward first and foremost, and I get that. But did you see the league in a different way then? Did, was, there, was there anything that you thought, I, you know, I never saw this when I was playing or this wasn't something I considered when I was playing? I suppose, I mean, you come through the league and, I, and even when I, I mean, there are a couple of occasions when, well, well, more than a couple of occasions, but when I played for England or I was in the, in, in the middle of my England career and came back and played for Stanmore at a weekend and stuff like that because... That's where your mates are. That's where you have a bit of fun. And, and I really enjoyed just pitching up, knocking about and spending a Saturday afternoon. If there wasn't Middlesex stuff and Middlesex gave me permission to do it, then then I'd be happy to do that. So I've always had a close link. And I suppose I came back to Middlesex in, 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 as MD of Cricket in 2009. And I was pretty disillusioned with what I saw in the way that it seemed to be then that there was an attitude amongst the players that the club were lucky to have the players and you're sat there thinking well hang on I mean this Middlesex dressing room that I walked into in the mid 80s I mean you were in no doubt that you were lucky to play for Middlesex because Middlesex is a great and was and is and will remain a great club and you certainly wanted to bring that back and I think also bring that back and the relevance of the league so again looking into the league for talent rather than just going around the country signing people and trying to in some way start a home more of a homegrown attitude then and yeah I mean coming back there and getting involved with the league and trying to motivate the league and make say if if there are people playing Saturday at first 11 cricket believing that they may get a contract or they may well get opportunities then it's going to spur them on a bit more and hopefully raise the standard a little bit more. And I suppose early on, I mean, I signed Tom Scully, who was obviously one of the better batsmen in the league for a number of years at East Coast. And then we signed Ollie Wilkin from Ealing because he, again, then was generally regarded as probably the outstanding cricketer in the league. So it was very much looking there to try to, one, get some, see whether we can work with these players and turn them into good professionals. And two, to give the league a bit of, uh, I suppose, to add a bit more edge to it, really. So it was twofold. It was, but I still, I don't know. You could say it's a bit of a, a sort of quandary, sort of. I, I don't know whether league cricket is about producing Middlesex cricketers, and I don't think it is. I think the leagues and, and the Middlesex League is about 22 people going out on a Saturday afternoon with the mates, enjoying playing this game and creating sort of relationships and sharing experiences and having some fun. And if as a consequence of that, good cricketers are produced, then brilliant. But the sole reason why people are playing on a Saturday afternoon is not to try to produce 
Middlesex cricketers. That's it, that, that can't be it. I mean, Middlesex's role is to try and provide and play a role in making sure the facilities that are there, whether it's the pitches, whatever it might be that, that, that is supporting league cricket, they're as of high quality as they possibly can be. That reminds me of a quote that Jack Leach said last summer when people were asking him about his cricketing journey. And he said, well, I'm, I'm Jack Leach and I'm a Taunton Cricket Club member. I just happen to play for England occasionally. And I yeah. thought it was a really nice line, you know, very unassuming. He says, you know, he, the journey beyond Taunton is just all fantastic. But he still sees himself as a club cricketer. And I'm sure he doesn't play much club cricket at all. But I thought it was a nice line. I mean, one of the things, and it, when I had my be- benefit year in 1997, it was Stanmore, Middlesex and England. So that's, they're my three teams as such and that's remained the case and Stanmore is I'm a chairman at Stanmore now we had the AGM on Friday I'm still chairman so I haven't been voted out which is a result but and I was up there Saturday morning cutting the gorse back at the far end of Warren Lane end of the ground because it's the boundaries are getting shorter because everything's growing so there is a genuine desire and commitment and it is a club cricket I think one of the things that allowed me to do quite well when I went through was that when I was stood at the end of my run-up to bowl a ball, it didn't matter whether I was at the MCG in front of 70,000 people or on Stanmore Common, I ran up with the same mindset. It was an important ball and that ball was the most important ball of my life and I was going to make it as good as it could possibly be. And I think it allowed you really then to tell what was taking place beyond the boundary and the match situations. It just meant that it was a very sort of simple, logical way to what you were doing, how you were doing things. You weren't grading matches you weren't grading grounds that you were playing at it was just every time I let go of that ball it represents me in some shape or form and if I run up there and I can't be asked, and I get slogged around the ground and I look a fool well that's how people are going to judge you and I don't want to be looked at that so every ball that I bowled was important whether it was for Stanmore at Richmond when I was in the middle of my England career or whether it was in front of 70,000 people at the Melbourne cricket ground. Yeah, I can totally appreciate that. And it's good to hear in a way for club cricketers like myself. You know, if people turn up and take the game seriously, then that's all you can ask, really. If test cricketers are doing that, then it's sort of a respect to the game, isn't it? And I'm not always convinced that there's enough of that respect out there. I also think as well, I don't, people who do think they can switch it on and switch it off, I think they're killing themselves because all of a sudden yeah. important games don't become important because whatever. So either every game's important or it's... Well, you start you sort of, yeah, you, you leave yourself open to indifferent displays and, and things like that. And again, it's like almost young cricketers can press a button and suddenly bowl like McLemagra. Well, no, it's thousands of balls of practice, thousands of balls of training got you there. You can't just sort of expect to develop the consistency in the skill set that some of these great cricketers have. Why just, because I want to. It's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of commitment, consistent commitment that, that, that gets you there. Yeah, if only it were that easy, eh? To press the button and away you go, you're a test cricketer. You know, if it were that easy, then, you know, it would be a straightforward place. Sal? So, last season, I think I spotted you probably at a couple of grounds, sort of you doing some kind of drop into certain clubs in the league. And also this winter, or this sort of last few weeks, actually, there's been these recreational mini forums that you've been holding at different clubs. What's been the aims of these, really? What are you trying to get from these forums and also your popping into clubs last season? Yeah, well, I mean, so I came back as MD of cricket and obviously your principal role there is the first team, the professional side and trying to get Middlesex who were languishing in the bottom half of the second division in Red Bull cricket, get us playing some better cricket. So, and that sort of occupies a lot of what you're doing. There's still a sort of an appreciation of club and league cricket, but if your focus is trying to get the first team, the culture and everything right there. I mean, 2021, I, 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 oh, there were two things. It's almost sort of, 
when Joe Root said about his sort of time as England captain, he's developed an unhealthy relationship with his job. And equally, someone said, like, burnout is when you care too much about something for a long period of time. And almost that's where I'd got with my role at Middlesex as MD of cricket. COVID was bloody hard, worked really hard to look after everybody. And then you come out of COVID and everybody's just expecting everything to be great. And a lot of the work that people did behind the scenes then went unappreciated. And it, it got to me emotionally, actually, and so I wasn't in a particularly good place. So Middlesex wanted me to stay around. Director of Development role was created. And development is largely facilities, and it's not just facilities for the professional side, but also facilities in club cricket and in, in, in league cricket. And equally, what's Middlesex's relationship like with the league and with the clubs? It's it's a pretty arm's length one, isn't it? And how can we work closer together? How can we improve the relationship between Middlesex's account and the clubs? Because for the It'll be good for everybody if we're all working closer together. And it's not a question of Middlesex controlling the league, controlling the clubs. That's not in my book anyway. I don't want Middlesex County Cricket Club telling me what I should be doing as chairman of Stanmore. But how can we work together better, get better relationships? And that's by going out there and spending time with them. So, yeah, I spent most of my Saturdays last summer, not just at the first Premier League size, but through K+, Lanka Lions, going to sort of Norfolk Park, and spending some time at all these venues, just get into, and I will carry on doing that this summer as well. So it's just to really start building relationships and try and get cricket within this area working more collaboratively together, really. I mean, we're incredibly fortunate in Northwest London, and it's sad that we haven't got the facilities to house everybody that wants to play the game, but there's such a high interest in cricket. It's fantastic. It's so humbling to go to the sort of marathon playing fields in in Greenford, and, and see these guys. They haven't got dressing rooms, they haven't got side screens, they haven't got scoreboards, and you sat there for sort of 40 minutes an hour, maybe a bit longer chatting with them, sat on the side of the pitch watching the game, and they just love the game. And it's, how can we try and make that experience a, a little bit better year by year? I think that's the, the real challenge for us moving forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And coming from a rural part of Middle England, I, you know, I am still, even though I've been down here 20 years, amazed at how many people in this county play cricket. You know, the clubs are fifth 11s, sixth 11s, you know. I mean, it's, it's incredible stuff. There's can't be many more counties in Britain who have the amount of cricketers that we do here. And that's, I think that's forgotten. We moan and groan about stuff. Things go wrong and there are always challenges. But a lot of people love the game and that's a decent starting point. And that's only the cricket we know about. I mean, there are leagues and there are things that, there are leagues and there are organised cricket sort of sides that, Middlesex don't even know about that are taking place with hundreds of crickets every Saturday. And we are fortunate that we do live in an area where interest in the game is as high as it is, because I think there are certainly other areas of the country where they've really struggled post-COVID, haven't they, with numbers and things like that. But the junior sections now at most cricket clubs or majority of cricket clubs, are just, they've got waiting lists, haven't they? Yeah, full to bursting at times. Gus, we've also got to do one other thing on this pod, and that is, well, hopefully Sal and myself can sort it out. And we've got to do a couple of cup draws. So moving on from Saturday cricket in the Middlesex County League, we're going to move to Sunday cricket in the Middlesex Cup and the Middlesex Trophy. Have you rehearsed this? No. (laughs) No. So this could be fun. But we are bringing back Eugene Berger, who's with us now. 
those people who regularly listen to us will know actually runs the shop, puts everything together. He knows the tech side of it. And Huge, and if you're watching this on Instagram, then you'll know Huge is currently holding what looked like a marvellous set of, I mean, I feel like chappers on the BBC, you know, doing the cup draw there for the FA Cup. 16 balls. Eugene, you have 16 there, do you? I do, yeah. One to 16. I don't know. Again, as Gus has just said, this has not been rehearsed. So I'm guessing you've got one to 16 with clubs' names next to them, guys? Oh, yeah, oh. we do, yeah. What did you take me for? Completely. I was just scared to death you were going to drop that huge in the water and go everywhere. Yeah, don't put any on the floor, yeah. huge. Get them all in the bag, no, no. you know. All in the bag. Yeah. Give it a good shake, yeah. And the way we'll do this is, obviously, Huge has the balls. We can all see him on Instagram. And if you're listening on the pod, then trust us or go to Instagram and have a look. Nice blue bag. Well, where'd you get that from, Huge? Very nice. I did it for the last cup draw. It's exactly the same. It's even the it's same the shoe bag. from two okay. years ago. All good. For those who don't know, so the Middlesex Cup, the top 16 sides in the county are in the Middlesex Cup. And Sal has a list of 1 to 16 in alphabetical order. And as and when Huge dips his mucky hand into that bag, he'll read out a number. And Sal has the list before him, so we'll work out who is playing who. And Huge has a particularly crap track record in terms of putting <laughs> Twickenham against somebody we, we usually struggle against. So, if we, well, I'm not going to say anything. Let's just see where this goes, OK? So, Huge, would you like to start the draw? Oh, good shake. Well, I like that. Good noise. The first ball out, oh, my gosh, is number one. That's Acton. I'm supposed to say something profound, aren't I, now, about Acton in the last 16 Middlesex Cups, but I can't think of anything. So uh, you carry on. Acton V. Having a new pavilion built. Actually, it's fine this two years ago. There we go. Oh, I like it, Sal. That's exactly the type of line. <laughs> and there we're playing Twickenham. Number 15. Which is well, better than Teddington. Teddington, well, which it normally is. Isn't that normally a preseason friendly you two play, Trevor, don't you? We do, yeah. That's right. I mean, so he'll be seeing you soon. Number 14. Number 14 is 10 and 10, Premier League champions. That means you got them in the next round. <laughs> oh, it does. <laughs> Cheers, <laughs> yeah. I knew it was too good to be true. Thanks. And man. you'll be away. <laughs> Actually, they might be at home with you, wouldn't they? No, we'll be at home. Yeah, be at home. <laughs> Number seven. They'll be playing Harris St. Mary's. Interesting. Like it's a promotion. Like, very good side in their day. So, interesting fact for that one. Next ball is number nine. Number nine's white, coming off fun and a home tie. We'll take that. Interesting. I can feel the tension rising. Who are they going to be playing against, though, Sal? That's a good question. Number 16. 16. Winchmore Hill, a local, not a local derby, but two clubs very close to each other. Interesting game. Same division as well. Next ball out the bag is number eight. Number eight is Hornsey. Relegated last year from the Premier Division, so hoping to bounce back. Are we playing against number 13? Number 13 Ooh. is Gus's side, Stanmore. Mm. We have number four. Number four is Crouch End. And they will be playing against number five. Number five, Ooh. Ealing. That's a good one, that one. I think we've got the TV tie, fellas. That's the one yeah. live on the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> so by my calculation... Should be only a few balls left. We have number 10. Number 10 is North, North Middlesex. So all the cot sides have got home oh. ties so far. Oh. And they will be playing against number 11. Which is Richmond, relegated from the Prem last year. Richmond, yeah. We have number three. 
number three, promoted Brunsbury. And they will be playing against number 12. Number 12, Shepherd's Bush. All Prem Clash. I have two more balls left in my bag. Good. Everybody gets a dirty mind over there. Number two. Number two is Barnes from Div 1. And anybody guess what the last number is? Should be able to know that if we look at our list properly. I'm guessing it might be six ish, is that right? It is number six, spot on. Finchley. Promoted Finchley. Div 1 plays Prem. Excellent work. Can you summarise those? Yeah, yeah, I can read those out. Yeah, we did. In case we did write them down, in case folks were thinking. I was going to say that. I thought they wanted to do that. Yeah, what I, would say, <laughs> I think the bottom half of that draw is looking tough, and we won't be needing any other draws because this is going to be like the World Snooker Championships, where the winners of one will play the winners of two, the winners of three will play the winners of four. So we'll know the, the draw right the way through to the final. But what we've got to start us off: Acton will host Twickenham, Teddington will play Harrison Marys, North London will play Winchmore Hill, Hornsey will play Stanmore. Crouchend will play Ealing, North Mid will play Richmond, Bronsbury will play Shepherd's Bush, and Barnes will play Finchley. Just to clarify for the listeners that Hampstead and Ostley have not entered the continent this season, so hence why their two names were not called out. Well, it is worth noting it's not compulsory to enter these competitions, no, and some sides have just found it so difficult to put competitive teams out that they've opted not to, for whatever reason, and that applies with the second of the draws that we're going to do this evening as well, and that's for the Middlesex Trophy. And that is, it's been fiercely competitive, Sal, actually, isn't it? It's generally for the next tier of sides down. And North London win the final two years ago? Yes, three years ago. Winchmore Hill? Yeah. Three years ago. So, And I remember there was quite a few people there on the day, and it was a very good day. So this competition is also fiercely competitive. There are 14 sides who are eligible and who have entered. Slightly complicates matters because... Two sides, therefore, will get a bye in the first round. And the, the Middlesex County League Committee have decided, and I totally understand this, that they will be Harrowtown and Southgate as they're the highest two placed sides in the competition. So we will draw We will draw again. Usually you're ready with your 16 balls. Are they all back in the back? Again, yeah. Give me one second. And to stress, some time. when you draws number 15 and number 16, you'll just chuck them out the window. Or you don't even need to put them in use. Which way are you going to go? They're in there Put now. them in. It's too late. Okay. Yeah. So 15 and 16 will be chucked out the window. And most importantly, Harrow Town and Southgate, when they come out, we will ensure that they are not actually playing anybody. I will talk folks through this as we go along. It's nowhere near as complicated as I've just made it sound, which is probably a good thing. Huge, kick us off. Number three is the first ball. Number three. So that is Ealing Trailfinders. And they will be playing against number 10. Number 10, Old Isleworthians, who may well be the lowest ranked side in it, Sal, is that right? Well, they got promoted last year into Div 3, yeah. yeah. Would so be. I think they are, so yeah, good one for them. Number 15. That's nobody. That can go out the window. Cool. Versus, actually, do, what happens then? Do I then draw the Let's next draw another one out, mate. Draw another one out, I'll talk you through it. Number 11. Number 11, South Hampstead. And they'll get, be at home too. Number one. Alexandra Park. Yeah. Number five. 
five is Enfield. They'll be playing against number two. They are playing Brentham. Number eight. Number eight, Indian Gymkhana. Let us go in there. We'll no doubt have a great curry for tea. Number six. And they are playing Harrow. Number seven. Number seven is Harrow Town. So they will have a buy. So the next team out will be at home. Harrow Town are through to the next round. So the next team out will also have a home game. And they are? Number four. Number four. East Coast are at home to? Number 13. East Coast are playing Wembley. Second last home game draw, I guess, mm. will be number 16. No, it won't. Carry on. Out the window with that one. Number 14. Number 14, Wickham House. Number nine. And they will play Kenton. Interesting game. Both got promoted last season from the same yeah, division. It is. So. Yeah, that is. Two competitive sides. Now tell me, Yush, please, that you've got one ball left. I do have one ball left. That is number 12. And that will be Southgate, who, as we've said at the beginning, they are they have a bye and they will play the winners of Wickham House or Kenton. And Southgate will be away. So I'll read that out again. Ealing Trailfinders will play Old Eyes or Worthians. South Hampstead will play Alexandra Park. Enfield will play Brentham. Indian Jim will play Harrow. Eastcote will play Wembley. Wickham House will play Kenton and Harrowtown. And Southgate will be smoking the metaphorical cigars and waiting for the second round. Highgate have also not entered yep. in, that, in that competition that time, so just to clarify that. Cool. All good. All good. Now, the league will obviously formally put those draws on, on the league website. Use you might do a bit of a bit of graphic action, as it were, with, uh, with Instagram and put them on there. Is that right? Yep. Once the league offici- or officially agrees to them, and as soon as that's all published on the league website, then they will go on onto social media. Marvellous. I should say as well, that we did ask about the draw for the T20, but very quickly realised that was way too complicated and above our pay grade because we need to make sure that's regional and there was issues about, you know, who was in which national tournament. So I was like, well, big time out on that one, Bob. We'll leave that one to you. So so Bob Baxter will be taking. Yeah, well done, Dan. He got through that 14 team one well there. I thought that's gonna, there's going to be a hiccup here somewhere. I was a bit worried at one stage, but we got there. That's all good. All good. Cool. Sal, any, anything else you wanted to throw in? We're, we're coming towards the end here. Any last final comments or questions? No, just to echo what Gus said. Well done getting the draw correct. That was uh, not an easy gig to do that. So well done and dusted. And thanks for Gus for coming on. Really good stuff. Interesting insight into your career and what you're doing now with the league itself. No, well, thanks very much. I'm so more than happy to be involved as and when. And I say look forward to getting around and catching up with more people this summer. I've actually offered to do a bit of umpiring down in some of the lower games as well, because I know umpiring is a is an issue, isn't it? Or well, the number of umpires. So yeah. I said to who? Uh, You've got a tin hat, yeah. yeah, but take your tin hat. That'll be fun. <laughs> no, but I think it's great. I mean, That's my goodness idea. me. Imagine yeah. playing in a game and Gus Fraser comes to umpire. That'd be fantastic. Until you give nine LBWs or whatever. But I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got, got sledged by Salmon early on, so I'm sure I'll be getting <laughs> sledged there as well. <laughs> All good. Guys, thanks for taking the time. We do appreciate it and we will call on your services again. There's no doubt about that. Huge thanks for helping out with the draw. Keep that bag nice and safe. We'll no doubt need it in, in 12 months' time again. Tread on you. All those table tennis balls there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good stuff. And we'll reconvene in three or four weeks to, to chew the fat again. Thanks, guys. Speak to everyone soon. Yeah, Cheers. Thanks very much. Okay. Bye.
Social Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.